Romans chapter 16, the last chapter in our study through this great, great letter. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house, and greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. And greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trephana and Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncretus and Phlegon and Hermas and Petrobus, Hermas and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia. Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And Father, to this happy greeting we turn this morning. Thankful, Lord, for all that you have seen to put down in Scripture. Lord, we don't cast this off as just Paul finishing out a letter and ready to move on to something else. Lord, we know that you intend for every word to be in the Bible. Every word that's here, of every verse, Father of every chapter, of every book or letter, we know it is by divine intention. So we ask you this morning, Lord, to give us holy revelation as to why we have all these greetings before us and what truly can we draw out of this that will affect our walk as we seek to follow after Jesus. Father, I love how you work. You know, as as I prayed about this before, Lord, that I intended a, a lighter, joyful, interesting, fun teaching this morning, that you have shown me some profound things. I pray that you will go deep in our hearts and do your work in us. We are not here just to play. Oh Lord, we're here to be joyful, to be sure. But we are here to be filled with truth and to be energized by Your Spirit to do Your will, O God, in these final days. So bless Your Word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, she came to be dearly loved. A person of surprising renown, beloved especially by children of the last century and on into this one. She was known to be kind and gentle, 
and patient and wise. And in the end, self-sacrificial. A true friend. Okay, so she was a spider. I'm talking about the E.B. White character from his classic children's story. The unlikely friendship between a pig named Wilbur and an eight-legged gray spider named Charlotte. I told you we were going to be profound this morning. In the story, I remember reading it as a young man. Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little were among many uh, books. Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White that I, I was handed by my folks when I was a kid, eight, nine, ten years old, and I just loved the books. And I learned words in the books. You know, that was my mother's intent. She was an English teacher. So I learned all kinds of words and how, how truly to speak with some semblance of intelligence. And I love the book Charlotte's Web. There, there was a word in it that was a word I saw for the very first time. I'd never heard it before. Truly, I didn't know what it meant. Let me read you the context. Charlotte's Web, Chapter 4, Loneliness. This was certainly the worst day of Wilbur's life. He didn't know whether he could endure the awful loneliness anymore. Darkness settled over everything. Soon there were only shadows and the noises of the sheep chewing their cuds and occasionally the rattle of cow chains up overhead. You can imagine Wilbur's surprise when out of the darkness came a small voice he had never heard before. It sounded rather thin but pleasant. Do you want a friend, Wilbur? The voice said. I'll be a friend to you. I've watched you all day and I like you. But I can't see you, said Wilbur, jumping to his feet. Who are you and where are you? I'm right up here, said the voice. Go to sleep and you'll see me in the morning. Chapter 5, Charlotte. Just as Wilbur was settling down for his morning nap, he heard again the voice that had addressed him the night before. Salutations. Wilbur jumped to his feet. Salut what? He cried. Salutations, repeated the voice. What are they? And where are you? Salutations are greetings, said the voice. When I say salutations, it's just my fancy way of saying good morning or hello. (laughs) Salutations. I think I tried to use the word the very next day in school. May have gotten beat up for it. But if I was going to give a title to the last chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, I would have to call it Salutations. It is filled with greetings, even more greetings than those which we read. There are greetings from Paul and from Tertius and from those who are with him in Corinth. And we'll look at those a little more on Wednesday night. But salutations to end this inspired, doctrinal, exhortational, revelational letter to the church at Rome. Salutations. Now that's really ironic. It's even odd. I I think I've said this probably with every book we've finished studying through the Bible. I would not have ended it this way. I would have ended it on a profound note. You know, with the orchestral music swelling and the depth of what has just been said rolling off my tongue. And indeed, Paul does. But so much time, so much emphasis right here at the letter in salutations. You would have thought the the interpreters and the writers and the scribes across the ages would just go, let's just end it at the end of chapter 15 and maybe tag it with the end of 16 because, I mean, these greetings don't mean anything to us. All these people, we don't know who they are. Oh, their names are fun. Sure, I might want to call my child Rufus, but I don't know who it is he's talking to. What's the implication for me? 
This is such a wonderful way to conclude because it's warm and it's real. This is not just a doctrinal thesis that Paul is presenting. He is talking to real people who he really loves and who really love him back. This is a letter forged in relationship. Truly, every letter in the Bible is. These are not theological treatises for us to study as if we're in college and move on with some amount of head knowledge. I've said so many times that the Bible is not personal, then we are not reading the Bible correctly. And Paul ends on such a personal note. 21 times he uses the Greek word for salutations. 21 times to 27 dear friends. The word is aspazomai in the Greek. Aspazomai, which means to draw toward, and it's a welcome embrace. But understand as we look through this that every time you see that word Greek, aspazomai, it is in the imperative form. My friends, Paul is not just giving greetings, he's commanding greetings. He is commanding what aspazomai truly means, to draw towards, to receive in a welcome embrace. This is not just a greeting of Paul's, this is a command for these 27 and all those of the church of Rome. Greet each other, warmly embrace each other, draw near toward each other. Receive one another with salutations, with warmth and love. It's so important to get because this is the imperative attitude the Holy Spirit commands of all believers, one to another, to salute, to honor, to greet, to warmly embrace one another. My friends, understand this is not optional. The warm, loving embrace of one Christian to another is not an option. It's not if I feel like it or if I've gotten my coffee. Hold off, I'll hug you in a minute. Let me get my muffin and square myself with the day. And then maybe, you know, we'll get a pat on the back. Warm embrace. The Holy Spirit describes for us, points out for us here, what the attitude of the believer is toward any other believer. Warm embrace. Loving affection. John puts a razor-sharp point on this when he says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God, oh, I love God, these are the days of Elijah we sing. The glory of the coming of the Lord. we got smiles on our faces. John's forcing you to clap while we're singing how we need Him. (laughs) And it's so easy to love God when I am emotionally motivated to do so in worship. But do you love God in every Christian relationship that you have? Is there a brother or a sister in Christ who you don't even really want to call a brother or sister because as far as you're concerned, they're marginal? You cannot love God whom you have seen and hate a brother. If you hate a brother, hate a sister, if you despise another believer, if you have bitterness towards someone, my friends, you've got to square it because you are not loving God. can't say I love God and hate a brother. I can't, if I can't, offer a loving embrace to a brother or sister in Christ 
at a minimum, something is off kilter in my heart. Now, please don't hear that in a judgmental way, because we can all get off kilter. All you need is a moment of conflict with a brother or sister, and your heart's going to go sideways toward that person. And I've been there. Hey, husbands, you've been there with your wives, wives with your husbands. Friends have been in conflict in a moment, and our hearts go sideways toward each other. I just don't want to talk to you right now. Coffee or not. (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with you until I can settle my thinking on this, and then we come back and there's forgiveness and all that. We all go through that. But I'm talking about holding on to a sense of hatred or bitterness. Cutting someone off. We don't have that option. The only biblical option for cutting off, by the way, in Scripture, Paul gives a few verses down. I'm not gonna, I don't think I'm gonna go there this morning. Maybe I will. But here's the thing. As if a warm embrace, a loving acceptance of one another wasn't tough enough, Paul goes even further and in verse 16 he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, let's just deal with that one right off. A holy kiss. Christians in the early church were encouraged to do this, gang, five times in the New Testament. A holy kiss. I know some of you guys want to use this as a pickup line. Some of you single guys, hey, greeting with a holy kiss is used five times in the New Testament, and five is the number of grace. Greet one another with a holy kiss in Romans 16, 16, right before us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul repeats it a third time. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, again he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then Peter jumps on the bandwagon and he writes, 1 Peter 5, 14, Greet one another with a kiss of agape. A kiss of love. Supposed to kiss one another? Now, kissing and feet washing, you know, these are the two. In our culture, it's kind of like, I don't know. I can sooner wash a brother's feet than kiss his face. (laughs) But let's be really clear about what the word kiss means, how it's described or defined in the Greek. You might define it smack, smooch, peck, snog, or canoodle. Whatever you call it, a kiss is still a kiss. (laughs) And we even have a sweet example of this. Not only is there biblical command to greet one another with a holy kiss, and I know this could severely affect membership at the bridge. (laughs) Or attendance, we don't have membership. We have a beautiful example of exactly what Paul is talking about when he is meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He's on his way out. He's headed back to Jerusalem. It's the last time they're going to see him. And they all have a sense that it is the last time and that Paul may be going to his death or at least to imprisonment. They don't know. But Acts 20 verse 37 says, They began to weep aloud. This is a bunch of men. Weeping aloud, they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Now, if our shepherds did that with me, (laughs) Doug, I'm out of here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In the mid-150s A.D., Justin Martyr mentioned this very thing as an act of worship, a regular feature of Christian worship. In his first apologies, he wrote, When we have ceased from our prayers, we greet one another with a holy kiss. 
Mark this. Take note of it. And understand that while the kiss is, even yet today, a common greeting among men in the Arab Middle East, the point isn't the kiss. The point is the holy. The holy. Which undermines every single guy out there. (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) Holy kiss. I want to do the holy kiss thing. Yeah, well, but your thinking is probably not right. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's the point? Christian greetings were to be set apart, unique, uncommon, and special. This was not the Arabic kiss one man to another on either side of the face in the marketplace. Hey, how's it going? This is a holy kiss. You matter to me. I'm pausing to make contact with you because I love you. Because you're important to me. This is not the I've got a headache kiss of a weary wife. It's the holy kiss. <laughs> it reminds me, I had a, a friend that I worked with, a young man who, who uh, interned with me in youth ministry back in California, great guy. And uh, he used to say, you know, what I do is I, I go up to my wife in the evening and I hand her the bottle of Tylenol. And she says to me, I don't have a headache. And I say, all right. It doesn't work. Now, bros, again, don't go trying out the holy kiss on your Christian sisters, or we will have a madhouse here. But listen, culture was a factor, but we've got to take into account here the receptivity of the heart, because that's what Paul's talking about. So often we get hung up on the words. And we miss the message that is to the heart. And the message is again, is again gre- greeting one another warmly and affectionately because we love each other. And if we're having trouble loving each other, if I can't even greet a Christian brother or sister, man, it's time to check the heart and get myself right with God. We know that the receptivity of the heart is the issue because, and I will point this much out, in verse 17, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. And Paul says, turn away from them. There is a brother, a sister in a fellowship that you do not give warm greeting to, and it is the one who is trying to divide that fellowship. That is the one person. I was asked about this actually last night. Rick, what do you mean by saying that you are intolerant of someone who causes dissension? That's the one area, as far as I'm concerned, in a church fellowship that is intolerable. Someone who is dividing. Setting brothers and sisters against each other. I will not greet that person with a holy kiss. Greet him with a holy whack. That is a time for a serious sit-down to say, you've got to stop what you're doing. Repent of it. Turn back to the loving fellowship to which we are called or leave. And that's the one, again, I have no tolerance for. We're going to talk more about what that really means actually on Wednesday night. But this morning, stick with the salutations, the warm greetings, the embrace of brothers and sisters in Christ. For in these first 16 verses, Paul affectionately greets 27 people. And when you really start to look into the names, it's fascinating who they are. What we learn of them, what we know about them. Men and women, 
brothers and sisters, co-laborers for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I promise you before we're done, the list will surprise you. It starts off with a saint named Phoebe. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, verse 1, who is a servant of the church which is at Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Phoebe. Sister Phoebe. She was at the church in Cancrea. See, there was Corinth, and then east of there was Cancrea. It was close, it was walking distance, but Cancrea was literally right on the sea. Corinth is, is located kind of in the midst of from one sea to another. And I'll talk about the geography of it when we get to 1 Corinthians, our next book. So perhaps even next Sunday. But Cancrea was the seaport arm or suburb, if you will, of Corinth, which was the larger city. And so Phoebe was a member of the fellowship there in Cancrea. Now both of them were 50 miles kind of west of Athens on a narrow strip at the head of the Peloponnesus. That is that that peninsula, southern peninsula of Greece. Phoebe's from that fellowship. She obviously, based on Paul's words, we can understand she worked closely with Paul. She was a hard worker, a co-laborer for the gospel. She is, in fact, as Tertius, we see back down in verse 22, as Tertius is the writer, the, the one who scribes this letter that Paul dictates to him, Phoebe is the courier. Phoebe is the one who's going to carry this letter now from Corinth over to Rome and deliver it to the saints there. That's an important job. Thank God for Phoebe. If she had not done her task well, we would not be looking at the book of Romans today. Phoebe, the sister in the Lord. She was also a diakonos, a deacon. Phoebe, the deaconess. Keep your finger there, and I'd like you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me just clear something up real quickly for you this morning about the role of deacons, diakonos, in a church. First of all, understand that deacon means servant. Anytime you see the word servant in the New Testament, if you look it up, it's either diakonos or doulos. Doulos is more the word for bond slave. Diakonos is the word for a servant, and it is used of an office in the church, especially there in the first century church, and still in the church today, many churches have the office of deacons. We don't have it as an office at the bridge because there are so many servants anyway. And partially because the moment you make it an office, they have to have meetings, and that just messes everything up. So diakonos, it means servant. Now watch this in verse 8. Paul writes, Deacons likewise, diakonos, servants, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women likewise must be dignified. Now if your translation says they're wives, it is wrong. It's wrong. The word there is not the word for wives, it is the word women. Gune. Very simply, women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Paul is describing deacons, describing those you put into positions of service, and he talks about the men and how they must be, and then he mentions the women. And how they, as servants, 
in the church must be. Rick, you're saying that there were female servants? Phoebe was a diaconess, a servant of the Lord at the church at Cancrea. And Paul specifically calls her out as such. Now you might read on and say, yeah, but verse 12 says deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and no woman can do that. At least not until America changed the law of, you know, 6,000 years. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and of their household. So how does this work? Again, some have translated the word there, women, to be wives just because it makes it easier. Because the very next verse says deacons have to be married, husbands of one wife, so therefore maybe he's just talking about their wives and then we don't have to deal with the whole men, women, roles, who does what and who's where. And that's interesting because that would then put a particular requirement on the wife of a deacon, although you will not find a similar requirement on the wife of an elder. That's odd. So a deacon's wife has to be such and such, but it doesn't matter. An elder's wife can pretty much be whatever she wants. She can be a carny at the local circus, no problem. (laughs) But a deacon's wife, oh, we've got requirements for her. I don't believe he's talking about a wife. I believe he's talking about women who are serving. Women who are in that role of diakonos. And by the way, there is a word, diakonisa, which is only found in Greek literature in ecclesiastical writings. That is, church-related writings. Here's a couple of thoughts. Either the implication here is that women should be married also... He just doesn't specifically say it. Or, Woost presumes that they were primarily widows, so it didn't apply. I guess that's a possibility. It's also possible, men, hang on to your hats, that Paul may be insinuating that we guys need the tenderizing of marriage before we hold any kind of church office. I'm actually okay with that. Because marriage does soften the edges of some brutish guys, myself included. The things that you learn from loving your wife and serving her and caring for her do translate into leading in a church fellowship or even serving. So it is possible that Paul put the requirement on men but not on women. I'm not saying that's the way it is. I'm saying it's possible. However... We need to understand that whatever your view is on this, the heart is still paramount. The heart is always the issue. Because serving in the body of Christ is neither a male nor a female station. It is the standard of all of Jesus' people. Do you understand that? Well, I'm not a deacon, therefore I don't have to do that. You're a follower of Jesus. And in Jesus' own words, he said, Mark 9.35, he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he or she, and the language can go either way, shall be last of all, and he says, diakonos of all. Sisters, if you want to be like Jesus, you must be a diakonos. You must be a servant. Gentlemen, the highest office in the church is not what sometimes we think. Pope, cardinal, bishop, or even elder. But the highest office in the church is bond slave. Servant. 
And that's our calling. In Galatians 3.28, Paul does say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there are specific roles. We are completely equal in terms of salvation and in terms of our standing before God, men and women alike. But there are different roles that God has given us. And again, we get further into the writings of Paul, you're going to see this, and we will clearly delineate what those roles are. But they're not a matter of who's better or worse or more qualified or more equal than others. No, we all are positionally the same before Jesus. But in terms of roles, there are different things that he calls men to do and different things that he calls women to do because he knows what we need to do for our hearts. It's clear teaching on this. Biblical roles of men and women. And by the way, the roles are not confining. They are liberating. But that's another teaching for another time. Back in Romans 16, what's interesting is we start with a woman who is a diakonos, Phoebe. And by the way, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight women on this list. In fact, here's another one. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, Aquila and Priscilla, Prisca and Aquila, and he said, and also, verse 5, greet the church that is in their house. Prisca, Priscilla, and Aquila. You're probably familiar with the names. You've heard them before. When we studied through Acts, we met Priscilla and Aquila. Originally, this couple, this Jewish couple came from Rome. They were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. There in Corinth, they met together. They began to work together. We don't know if Paul actually evangelized them and they came to the Lord because of Paul there or they were already Messianic Jews Jews who were Christians when they met him, but they had been kicked out of Rome. Under the reign of Claudius, they were booted out of Rome as all the Jews were, uh, driven out, Until Claudius died in 54 AD, and then that rule was rescinded, and then all the Jews began to come back, which is why I believe Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome when Paul is writing this letter. Because this is now four years after Claudius died. Are you with me? Claudius dies, the Jews begin to go home, Paul's now in Corinth, Prisca and Aquila are no longer there, and so he writes this letter, and he's greeting them back in Rome, his dear friends, his beloved Now, what's interesting is that Paul, with with Prisca and Aquila, he names Prisca before Aquila. He names the woman before the man. You did not do that. In either Greek or Roman or Jewish culture especially, it was always the husband first. It was always the man of the house. Not in this case. It's Prisca and Aquila. He talks to her first. He greets her first. And that's unusual. But I did a little more research, and I think this is fascinating, about Priscilla and Aquila. Note this, they are always named together and never apart. That's a good standard for a husband and a wife. To serve the Lord together. To be named together. I don't like standing alone as Pastor Rick. I much prefer Rick and Cheryl. Because Rick and Cheryl together have walked this road. Rick and Cheryl together have served. You may not see Cheryl as visibly as you see Rick, and for that I apologize. But Rick and Cheryl walk together. And if a husband and a wife know Jesus and are serving Jesus, they serve Jesus best together. 
You never see Priscilla and Aquila in separate locations or referred to separately in the Scriptures. The other thing that's interesting is you see them six times. Six times these two saints are mentioned throughout the New Testament. Three times it's Prisca and Aquila. Three times it's Aquila and Priscilla. I love that. There are days in my marriage where Cheryl is out front in faith. Where she's the one who's trusting. And she is showing me that. And I follow her lead. And there are days in our marriage where I'm out front in our faith. As much as I determine and want to be a spiritual leader in our house, I need my wife. And there are days where she leads me, and there are days where I lead her. And I love the description of Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, because they're always together, and depending on where they're at, one or the other is leading out. But they are always together. Understand? It is a beautiful picture of a Christian marriage. And the bottom line is this, and I am speaking to married people just for a moment. Listen, put Christ first. And it will never matter which one of you, husband or wife, is named first. Put Jesus first in your marriage, and it will not matter which of you comes first in the relationship. Put Jesus first before yourself and before your spouse, and you cannot help but put your spouse before yourself. In my marriage, if Jesus is coming first, guess who is also? Cheryl is. Because out of my love for Him, I submit to her. And out of her love for Him, she submits to me. And therefore, together we have a strong bond because of Jesus. And He is the key. And if your marriage is wonky, it's good use of the word. If your marriage is out of whack, you cannot choose for your spouse how they are going to respond or react or behave but you can choose to put Jesus first and then to love your spouse the way Jesus loved you what did he say in Romans 15 7 accept one another as Christ Jesus has also accepted us Jesus first is the key in fact Jesus first is the key in any relationship you put Christ Jesus first in any relationship be it with a brother a sister a friend a mother a father children you will always find if you put Jesus first that the other person in your relationship takes precedence over yourself that's the way it works Prisca and Aquila Aquila and Prisca Paul also mentions there in verse 5 that they are to greet the church that is in their house does that mean we should all be in house churches? That, that is a movement that comes and goes. And probably has for 2,000 years. But just in my time in ministry, I've seen kind of a surge of people saying we need to be all in house churches. And then we see it kind of drift back. And then we see a surge again. And up here in the Northwest, there are a lot of house churches. Praise the Lord. Anytime Christians gather together to worship and serve Him, it's a good thing. And I'm not opposed to house churches. In fact, my thinking is that in any church fellowship, we need house churches. There are things that the bridge as a fellowship can do as a larger church that a house church of four or five people cannot do. Simply can't. But that doesn't mean that there's no value in the house as well. Here's the bottom line and what Rick thinks about house churches. The early church was neither bedroom, committee, uh, bedroom communities nor basilicas. It was neither house churches or holy cathedrals. It was about togetherness, period. 
That's the issue. In fact, when you read it in Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and in sincerity of house, uh, 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 in sincerity of heart. Did you get that? That they are in the temple every day and house to house. It's not an either or. I think we miss it when we make it either or. I think those who are only in a house church and reject larger fellowship in a Christian community are missing the dynamic. But I also think those who show up on Sunday morning and that's all the church they get are missing an important dynamic of our faith and that is the home fellowship. So I encourage you to ponder that and chew on that. A growing church requires, demands, needs small home groups, grace groups we call them, or Acts 242 groups, or whatever you want to call them. I don't care. But home fellowships, because my friends, you all know this, true ministry happens in smaller groups. It does not happen in the large assembly. Not like it can personally. And if you're feeling on the outside, or you're feeling like you're not connected then you need to be involved in a home church. We have small groups in Anacortes. We have small groups in Coopville, in, in Oak Harbor, in different places. Ask. We'll, we'll, we'll hook you up. But we need both. Now, going on, after Prisca and Aquila, we come to Epinatus in verse 5. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. How cool is that? And also greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Epinatus, his name means praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. And he has distinction, the distinction of what Paul says here. Paul calls him literally the first fruits of those in Asia. So this is the first guy that came to the Lord under the mission work and the teaching of Paul. A very, very special individual as far as Paul was concerned. Do you remember who the first person is that you led to the Lord? Think back. Can you recall the very first person? Now someone might say, I don't think I've ever led anybody to the Lord. That's okay. Get started. It's very simple. Start talking about Jesus. And if you can think back, and if you have led one or two or five people to Jesus, who was the first? That's a special person. And that's someone who I would not be surprised would come up to you in heaven and greet you with a holy kiss. So be looking forward to that. Mary. Mary here in verse 6. Greet Mary who's worked hard for you is one of six Marys listed in Scripture. Very, very common Jewish name. This Mary is unknown to us except for the fact that she was a hard worker and importantly, she made the list. She made the list. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Stop right there just for a moment. Andronicus and Junius are probably another married couple of Jewish believers. Because first of all, Paul calls them my kinsmen. He only typically refers to kinsmen as Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. And so we think Andronicus and Junius were probably Jewish, and Junius is a female name. So this could be a brother and sister. More likely it's another husband and wife like Prisca and Aquila. Greet them, Paul says. And note this, they were my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, so they did hard time with Paul. (laughs) 
And then he says, who were outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Wow. These two were early Christians, even before Paul himself. So somewhere in his travels or journeys or or his own faith walk, he met these two. This Andronicus and Junius. And they were already believers, and so they probably were a great encouragement to Paul. And these two also were possibly in Rome from Jerusalem. Or maybe from Antioch, where Paul had been before. But don't miss this. They are outstanding among the apostles. And the implication in the way this is written, and I'm going to give you my opinion, but the opinion is strong in this direction. Is not that the apostles, the apostles thought highly of them, but that Andronicus and Junius were referred to as apostles themselves. A woman apostle? Wait a minute, what about the twelve? Paul often uses the word apostle in a broader sense than simply the original twelve. I don't take anything away from the importance and the place that Jesus gives to the twelve. And as a matter of fact, you go to the end of the book of Revelation, and their names are listed on the walls of New Jerusalem. So the original twelve have a significance that is unparalleled, that no one else, I think, attains to, something unique and specific about them, even Jesus saying, you are going to rule over Israel on twelve thrones. So there's the twelve apostles, I understand that. But Paul also used the word apostle, apostolos, in the Greek, to refer to Andronicus and Junius, this couple, man and woman, apostles. Let me make it easier for you. An apostle in the Greek language is simply a delegate, a messenger, one who is sent forth. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you might note this, Paul refers to a group of phony messengers. The NIV translates the phrase super apostles. We might call them super delegates, and they're phony. I don't know if there's a connection to present day. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 29, all are not apostles, are they? And the implication is that the, apost- the apostolic calling is a gift. In fact, he clarifies that in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The apostolos was one of five areas, five leadership giftings that God gave to the church. So I don't believe the apostles ended with the twelve apostles. Yes, the twelve had a unique position and place and always will. But that those who are sent out, those who are messengers of the gospel, who are among the delegates going into the world, taking the gospel, are the apostolos. And so Andronicus and Junius would be two of these. It's just how they rolled. Now, if this unsettles you or bothers your theology a little bit, that's okay. Just don't get too hung up on any titles. Titles matter nothing. Remember, Jesus said, He who would be greatest among you must be servant of all. That's what God's looking for. Not those who will own the titles. And we never are called to use our titles and our position. Don't do that. Andronicus and Junius, interesting. 
It's also possible that part of the reason Paul calls them apostles is that they were in Judea and they themselves may have been witnesses of Jesus in His resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 says, Jesus appeared then to all the apostles. I've always assumed that was the twelve, but what if it was others who then from there were sent forth? Apostolos. So Andronicus and Junius, interesting couple. I will look forward to greeting and getting to know them in the future. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Ampliatus, I like it, it means ample. Greet the ample one. This guy spent a lot of time at the Donut Master. You know, greet Ampliatus. My beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, greet Herodian, my kinsman, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Now we take those all together, and quickly there's Ampliatus, who again, his name means large, ample. It's where we get our word. It's a Roman name, and interestingly, Ampliatus is a name that is found on ancient inscriptions for people who have imperial status. Ampliatus, likely a man of some note in the Roman government. Urbanus, his name, where we get the word urban. Urbanus means belonging to the city. He belongs to the city. Glenn Fry wrote about him in 1985. It's a very common Gentile Roman name, Urbanus. You would hear it often. A name on the street. Stachys is another pretty common name, but it's an imperial name. So like Ampliatus, Stachys is one that you see a lot of times in ancient inscriptions in imperial references. That name means head of grain or fruitful one. Then you've got Apelles. His name means called. And Apelles, though a Greek name, is a very common Jewish Greek name. And then you've got Aristobulus. Aristobulus means best counsel or counselor. And Aristobulus appears to be here of Herodian descent. Then you've got the next guy there in the list, Herodian. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Well, he's a Jew. And again, possibly also a distant relation to the house of Herod himself. So, perhaps a half-Jew. If you were named Herodian, you would be of that line. And finally, in this list coming down to the end of verse 11, we have Narcissus. Narcissus, which means, and I kid you not, stupid one. (laughs) How long was Narcissus on the planet before his parents named him? He's so stupid. Every time we turn around, little, you know, eight-week-old Narcissus is reaching for the light socket. What is wrong with this kid? We might as well just call it as we see it, stupid one. Here's the thing. Why would any parent in their right mind call their child stupid one? I mean, before they're born. I understand after. That comes to mind often. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Why would a parent name their child Narcissus? Because Narcissus was a very common slave name. And the slaves would then have their children often named by their masters. Stupid one. 
It was a demeaning name, and it was given to slaves and children of slaves. The reason why I take all these verses together, note the contrast of these people. You want to talk about multiculturalism and diversity? So far in the list, just down to verse 11, we've got deaconesses, teachers, apostles, imperials, Romans, Jews, Herodians, Greeks, and even slaves all included in one family warmly greeting one another. You think we're diverse? Oh, the bridge is diverse because people come from all kinds of denominational backgrounds. Try being in the church at Rome. Try being a Jew and an imperialist Roman and being called upon to greet one another with a holy kiss. Try being a slave in that same fellowship. A Herodian who the Jews hated. There's all manner of reasons just among these names for them not to get along and yet they're a fellowship of believers. Isn't that remarkable? And it's beautiful because it's a picture of exactly what we are called to. To be one family in Christ Jesus, regardless of background or station in life or job or position, it doesn't matter. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, one family in the Lord, warmly greeting one another with a kiss of agape. Loving each other from the heart. Accepting one another just as Christ accepted us. Verse 12. Greet Trophena and Trephosa, workers in the Lord, and greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Trophena and and Trephosa, probably twin sisters. They're both female names, and they're so closely connected. In fact, both names are from the Greek name for, or word for, luxurious. These are the the luxurious twin sisters, Trophena and Trephosa. And then there's Persis which is another female name, and it means of Persia. So she's probably, now we have another one to add in, a woman of Persian descent. And these twin sisters, who came from lives of luxury, if their names bear any truth, and now are part of the fellowship as well. Note this, especially brothers. Greet Persis the Beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. Every time Paul says this is someone who is a hard worker in the Lord, every time on this list he is describing a woman. He never says it once about a man. Now it may be because he's assuming the men are hard workers anyway. But it also, I think, is a clear picture. Bros, we better stay on our toes. Because in any church fellowship, and I've seen it over and over and over, if you want to get something done, ask the women, and it gets done. Ask the men, and we'll form a committee and think about it. <laughs> ask the men, and we will pray over it, and we will table the discussion until next month. But if you want to just get it done quickly, hey, ladies, would you, boom, and it's done. Women have a tendency to roll up their sleeves for the gospel. Men tend to click the TV remote. But that's, you know, we can get over that. We can grow in the Lord. But I do find it interesting that Paul calls out all the hard workers and, and their women in this, in this list of greetings. Verse 13. Greet Rufus. I love Rufus. I still, you know, I wish I had read this verse back before we named our kids because I guarantee you I would have fought hard for at least one of them, probably Hannah, to be named Rufus. <laughs> Although Rufus is a man's name, this is a son, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Rufus means red. Great red. Big red. And because of the specific greeting, we think that this may be a very uniquely, a son of a very uniquely placed man. 
you Bible students know where I'm going with this. Mark 15:21 says, They pressed into service a passer-by coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father, Mark points out, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And the only other place we have Rufus mentioned in the New Testament is right here in Romans 16 as a member of the church, an active participant, a worker in the church at Rome. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus, had two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and here we see a Rufus. Now, it could just be another Rufus, possibly. But think about the evidence. Mark's Gospel. Conservative commentators and scholars believe, that, and the evidence points toward this, that Mark wrote his Gospel off of Peter's sermons preached in Rome. And so here's Rufus in Rome. Why would in Mark 15, would Mark set aside and say, Simon of Cyrene, who by the way is the father of Alexander and Rufus? Why add that little tag there? Unless you're adding it to let people know who it is here in Rome who is a son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. Simon of Cyrene was a black man, by the way. He was from Cyrene, which was Africa. And so he and his son. So look at, again, the diversity continues to expand here among all the people that Paul greets in Rome. The same Simon is mentioned in Acts 13, verses 1 and 2. We believe the same Simon of Cyrene was up in Antioch at that time among Saul and Barnabas and others who were praying when the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for me. And so Simon who bore the cross of Jesus and had the son now in Rome named Rufus, may have, if this all is correct, may have been one of the ones who laid hands on Paul and commissioned him into missionary work. It's a big world, and yet it's a very small family. And people knew each other, and we see Rufus now here in Rome. Son, perhaps, of Simon the cross-bearer, who then passes now the cross onto his son Rufus. There's a great principle here, parents. Jesus says in Matthew 16:24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Moms and dads, if you bear the cross of Christ before your children, it will deeply impact your children. And if this Rufus is the son of Simon who carried Jesus' cross, that changed Simon's entire family line. And Rufus is now a servant in Rome. I think that's marvelous. Verse 14. Greet Asyncretus and Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren with them. Okay, these guys. Asyncretus literally means incomparable one. If you just want to jot these down, Phlegon means burning. Hermes is herald of the gods. Hermes was also called Mercury in the Greek mythology. So Hermes, herald of the gods. Petrobus means fatherly. It was a wealthy name that was typically given among wealthy circles. Then you have Hermes, not Hermes. There's Hermes, they're just two variations of the same name. Also Mercury. And then this name, and I think this is a great name, Philologus. Philologus. If I'd had just two sons and had read this prior to their birth, I would have had Rufus and Philologus. Because Philologus means lover of the word. Lover of the word. What a great name. Julia there in that list. Julia, of course, another woman. Her name just means soft-haired. So if your name is Julia, you're a soft-haired one. Congratulations. Congratulations. 
Another sister of faith, though. And then we have Nereus. Uh, Nereus, his name means lump. And then Paul just says, and his sister, and doesn't name her. Well, I hope not. I'd hate to know what her name was. This guy's named Lump. So Lump and his sister. And finally, we have Olympus. Obviously, the Greek thinking of the the heavenly and the, and the, the God's little G of Olympus. And so it's a very Greek name, meaning heavenly. But listen, I wanted to read all the names this morning because if for no other reason, they deserve to be honored. These are our fellow believers. These are saints of the Lord who worked hard for the gospel. These were those who have the distinction of being listed in the Bible. Wow! You're not listed in the Bible unless there's something excellent or amazing, or in some cases nefarious, that you were involved in. And Paul calls all of these out. He honors them and he offers them salutations. And he commands them to salute each other, salutations one to another, warm, affectionate greetings. And then finally in verse 16 again, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let your affection for one another be holy. I read through this and again, I I was thinking light this week. I was in a happy mood. And thinking this will be fun to kind of go through these names and there's some humor here and we can enjoy this together. And as the week wore on, some other things took place that reminded me that I do not live in the ideological world that I like to live in sometimes. You know, sometimes when I'm studying the Bible, I can get really ideological. Accept one another as Christ Jesus accepted us. Oh yeah! Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, we can translate that, you know. Love each other. Embrace one another. And I read this and go, oh yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. And and I can kind of live in that space. And then something happens. And sometimes, sometimes a spider is just a spider. And you get bit. And you get stung in relationships rather than befriended. Sometimes we can really be piggish one to another. Making a mess of our relationships, demanding the best spot on the manure pile. (laughs) What would happen, honestly, if we determined simply to start by greeting one another with holy embrace and Christ like acceptance? So simple but so profound in the effect on our relationships one with another. I'm not talking about the blind, bland, anything goes, do what you want, hell-bound acceptance of the world, by the way. Oh, just tolerate anything, accept anyone, it doesn't matter what anybody does, says, or thinks, that doesn't matter, you just got to be tolerant, you just got to put up and allow for everything. I'm sorry, that's not biblical either. We have a standard that we're called to live by and to call each other to and encourage each other to. But we are to do so in love and in embrace. And I'm talking about here the kind of acceptance that is based in the absolute grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. What if we really looked at each other that way? Treated each other that way? You know what's interesting about this letter? especially these warm greetings and this long list of people, Paul had never been to Rome. 
He'd never been there. And yet he's got, and there was no Facebook. How could he have a friends list like this if there wasn't even Facebook? I mean, how many people can you list out with this level of personal affection? And don't go to your phones and quickly say, well, I got 475 right here. I've ragged on Facebook before. Look, I understand something. I've got to say this about Facebook real quick. I get that Facebook can be an effective tool. And some of you use it very effectively to preach the gospel and to put the Lord out there and to proclaim who Jesus is. Marvelous. But I also understand this, that Facebook reflects the culture. There's a reason it's so popular beyond simply it being a tool. And it has been shown now, and parents pay attention to this for your kids, it has been shown that Facebook tends to produce more feelings of loneliness and isolation than it does affection. Why does Paul say, greet one another with a holy kiss? Because you can't do that through a computer. You can't do that on the phone. You can't do that via email or text. You can only do that one-to-one. You can only do that in personal contact and affection for another person. And we need that. We need godly embrace in this culture more than ever before. True, real, genuine, authentic Christian relationships of love one to another. To practice love here and now for the kingdom to come. To love as Jesus loved. Who said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. But what did he command us? John 13, 34, A new commandment. He had just said this to the apostles. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. Another. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why is that a new commandment, Jesus? Because he says, not only love one another, he says, do it the way I've loved you. How did Jesus love us? He sacrificed everything. He put himself last, that we might be put first. That is the model of love. That's how we learn to warmly greet each other in holiness and in affection and in agape. And no one had ever loved like Jesus loved before, which is why it was a new commandment. So I say again, if you can't, if I can't offer a welcome embrace to any brother or sister in Jesus Christ, something is off in my heart. Oh, we love you, Lord. We know of your love for us. We're undeserving of it. But thank you. Praise you. We embrace you this morning, Lord Jesus. May we in like manner embrace one another. In Jesus' name.